Father, thank you for the new morning. Thank you for meeting our needs abundantly. Um, We do want to have grateful hearts, particularly this Thanksgiving week, to count our blessings, to praise you for your goodness. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the encouragement it always brings for us to be here. And thank you, Lord, for Dr. Galuza. Encourage his heart, even as he speaks and shares with us now this hour. And then as we repeat the early session at the late service, I pray that you'll stir our hearts to worship and to marvel at the wonder of our great, of you, our great creator, God. And thank you uh, for stooping down and sending Christ and meeting our need for salvation. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, thank you, Randy, for being here. The Lord bless you. We so we'll receive your teaching. Thanks. Thank you. Wow. So, Mike Donnelly, who set this up, he, he said, can you come out and talk to our Sunday school class as well? I said, sure. He said, we've had creation speakers here in the past. We just had some people from AIG here about a year ago. And I said, good. So, their church is really pretty creation savvy. He said, yes, you guys are creation savvy. Are you, do, you th- do you think yourselves as pretty savvy? All right, savvy. So I don't have to go over all of the basics of creation with you on all of those things. What I, so I said, well, if they're really, really savvy, are you guys really, really savvy? All right, really, really savvy here. Then I would like to present to them something completely new. In fact, I presented this material at a science conference just two weeks ago. So this is brand new. So this is on the cutting edge. How many of you have ever been to a science meeting ever of any type? Just probably not that many. Well, if you go to science meetings, like if you went to something in Washington, D.C., the scientific researchers would all come, and those who have done research will put together a poster. That's what this is. This is a scientific poster. And the poster summarizes their research so that people can walk through a big room and there would be posters all around the place and you can do it relatively quickly. You can just go up, glance over their poster, kind of get an idea of what their research is, ask the person some questions about their poster, talk with them a little bit, and then you go on to the next poster. And they have these poster sessions where everybody can rapidly get up to speed on research. Does that make sense? How many, so I take it most of you have never looked at a scientific poster before, but we will in church because you guys are what? Savvy. 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 There you go. You're, you're, you're really savvy. You're savvy here. So this is going to present hopefully a radically new but biblically accurate way for you to understand how organisms actually function in terms of real design. Because unfortunately us creationists have not been doing the church a big favor. We've been basically taking the evolutionary message in many ways of saying organisms are shaped and molded by their environment to adapt, but we just don't say they adapt as much as evolutionists do. Now that is really not a good message. Because the Bible says the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world being understood by the things that are what? Made. Made. So he is talking like a designer. Now, here's my clicker. 
This is made. Everybody agrees this is made. This was made by a real mind. This has multiple parts working together for a purpose. And I know it's made because I know that I know that a real mind made it, but it's analogous to how living things function. And it has to be analogous by living how living things function. Think about it biblically. If living things did not function in similar ways to man-made things, we would not know that they were made. If it took some special key or revelation from God to figure out man-made things, I mean God-made things, if, if you need to have some special revelation to figure out God-made things, would they be clearly seen? All right, savvy people. If you needed some special revelation to figure out how God made things work, would it be clearly seen? No. No, it would not be clearly seen. But because living things function like man-made things, only far, far, far better, but how they function how they function, how they work, is going to be understandable by humans because we make things ourselves, don't we? We put things together, and we know how things have to function. What creationists have not been doing is we've been talking about intelligent design, we've been talking about design, but we have not been thinking like designers. In other words, we need to be thinking more like Engineers who come up with solutions to problems. So I want to use an example of your immune system, which all of you know is a system in your body which fights off diseases, fights off things that are going to hurt you and protects you, and gets you to think about it in a completely different way by thinking about it as if you were an engineer. All right? That's what we need to do. And it all begins with the work of this researcher. His man was Joseph Francis. He's a microbiologist. He teaches at the Master's College out in California. And 15, 20 years ago, he had a novel idea. He said, bacteria are not your enemy. Bacteria and virus and these microbes are really your friends. Now, at the time, everybody thought he was a little wacko. Now, everybody today is beginning to think what? Microbes and viruses are your friends. But he was really ahead of the game because he thinks biblically. And he realized God made these microbes. God made us. There was a time before the fall when there was no death. There was no disease. So microbes had to work with us. In fact, microbes do so many important things on this planet to keep life going that they are a vital organosubstrate. In other words, if the bacteria were to be gone from this planet and viruses today... How long would it take life to stop? By tomorrow. All life. By tomorrow. That's how much, that's, that's what they are doing for all living things on this planet. They are doing some really, really important things. And so there was a time when humans and microbes lived together, all of them peaceably, and most of them still do. Now there's a, there's a micrograph of a bacteria. Isn't that kind of a pretty one? It's got a spiral to it. It's not just round. It's a, it looks like a corkscrew. That one's called treponema. And if you get that in your body today, you'll get syphilis. Wow. Well, there was a time when this was probably in Joe Francis's body. I'm not saying he has syphilis, 
But according to his theory, he could have lived together with this treponema at one time. So the question is, if we are going to think about designers, and you don't have to read this whole thing, how would designers, how would an engineer, let's make believe you're all engineers for a moment, and I said to you, get bacteria to work together with humans. Is a bacteria an independent, autonomous thing? Yes. Yes, it is. It's an independent, autonomous thing. It's its own entity. It has its own boundary around it, doesn't it? Are you an independent, autonomous thing? Yes, you are. Autonomous, by the way, does not mean that you don't need resources, or that you don't need food, or you don't need energy. It just means that you're you. You're you. You're autonomous. You're you. All of us are individual things. So, if I were to ask you as an engineer, how would you get a bacteria and a human to work together? Do you just, do you just say to them like a mom does, okay, son, play with your sister. You know, yeah, just, just do it. Just do it. Do you take a bacteria and you just put them together with a human and say, okay, work together. Work together. No, you can't do that. How, do you get, how would an engineer get two independent, autonomous things to work together? They would build an interface. An interface. Do you know what I'm talking about? They would build something which brings those two things together. So, maybe God used an interface to get us and bacteria to work together. Isn't that thinking biblically and scientifically? In fact, look at this. This is an Apollo's spacecraft. This was from the 70s. This is when the Soviet Union was our enemy and we were trying to have detente and we wanted them to work together, but they were two independent spacecraft built by two different countries. And look what someone built to get those two things to work together. They built an interface. They built something which would connect them together. Well, how do you get human beings to work together with machines? Hmm. That human beings working with that machine, look at that right there. Someone put an interface on the machine called handles. Handles that fit his hands and connect the machine to him and connect him to the machine so that he can do those things. Those are, that's an interface. How in the world do you get a human being to connect to a drain pipe? How do you get a human being to connect to a drain pipe? Well, we would build an interface right there. We build an interface and that connects us. That connects us to that. I mean, designers have to come up with something. You just don't say, drain pipe, human being, fit together. You find something that bridges the gap bridges the gap. And it has a pipe end to it and a human end. A human end that bridges the gap. So everything, everything that is going to get two independent things to work together from an engineering standpoint always has an interface. So we ask these questions. Can we as creationists come up with a better explanation for an immune system which was supposed to protect us from disease. But wait, before Adam sinned, there was no disease. So what was the function of an immune system before that? 
Hmm, that's a great question, isn't it? If engineers would have connected humans with microbes using an interface, did God use an interface to connect us to the microbes? And if we combine some design analysis with Joe Francis's new view that bugs, the microbes, are really supposed to be our friends, maybe God used an interface to connect humans with microbes which are really supposed to be useful to us. Isn't that biblical thinking and scientific thinking and putting them all together? Yes, that's what we're supposed to do. So the question is, does your so-called immune system have the features of a real interface? That's the scientific question. Does your immune system have the features of an interface? And the answer is yes. Because as we look at interfaces here, and we can look really close, you see this gal? She connects to her computer's operating system via an interface. There's little pictures on her screen that she can touch with her fingers or she can click with her mouse. And that is the interface that connects you to your computer's operating system. And then when computers have to connect with each other, guess what they use? They use an interface. And when you log on to Amazon.com, anybody ever done that? What connects you to the company? An interface. And it's not just connecting you, it's connecting hundreds of thousands of people all at once. Connecting you to the company through these incredible interfaces. Well, what are necessary to make things work together? Well, let's look on the human side. You have to have sensors. You have sensors, your eyes, your fingers and things. You have a brain, which is your cognition. Way to say, if this, then do that. And you have actuators, known as your fingers. And on the machine side, it has exactly the same thing. Your machine will have a sensor. It has a computer in it, which is its processor. And it has actuators. And when both of those things work together, they will be built together as an interface. And this paper said that they're written by three IBM researchers, that there are three indispensable elements which must be on any type of interface, connecting two different things. First, you have to be able to authenticate, that is, differentiate self from non-self. Because you have two independent entities, if you're going to connect them, they have to be able to know what's me and what's not me. And these authentication systems say, how much of myself am I going to let you, the non-self, know about me? A little bit or a lot? And that's how authentication works. And it governs those things. Now for the scientific people in the crowd, in the blue box, are the features of your immune system which actually identify self from non-self. Would your immune system have to identify self from non-self? Sure it does. And then the next one are the really important ones, protocols. Protocols are rules, rules that govern when, where, and how exchanges of information are going to take place. Information just doesn't flow across. There's rules that say, this is the type of information. This is the format of the information. This is the code of the information. And when it meets those protocols, then information can be exchanged. Does that make sense? It has to do that. 
And in the blue box are the areas of your immune system which does it. And then finally, there has to be a common medium which both entities can tie into. Can tie into. How many of you remember the human and the drain pipe? There was a common medium between you, wasn't it? That both of you tied into. There has to be something common there. And in the biochemical world, it's chemical reactions that tie those things together. Right now, let's see if you're following me, since you guys are very what? Savvy. What is the common medium that's connecting me, excuse me, me to you? Right now, I'm talking to you. What is the common medium? Oh, you don't have to raise your hand. Just shout it out. Words, but words, words are the protocols. There's a medium that we're both connected to. A medium. Air, air. Air. It's air. Air is the common medium. My vocal cords compress the air, don't they? And it sends compressed air waves through the what? Air. And what picks up the compressed airways? Your ears. But what part of your ear? Specifically, your ear drum. Your ear drum senses those compressed airs and it transfers it to information to your brain. So there is a common medium right now connecting us. Who designed that? The Lord designed that. The Lord designed that. He put that together. And your immune system has biochemical reactions, chemical reactions that connect you to the bacteria. Wow. Let's go over some of those. First, authentication. Here's a really cool one. <clears throat> you realize that your white blood cells don't always recognize self from non-self? They go through an education process in which certain cells, which are called natural killer cells, because they do what to other things? They naturally kill them. They naturally kill them. But they're not, they're not natural killers right from birth. They have to go through a process in which they get, as we call it, licensed. In other words, licensed to kill. They get licensed to kill. And how they get licensed to kill is they memorize markers on your body and anything that doesn't come in with those markers, they naturally kill it. And this is how you learn self from non-self. But it's not just in humans. Bacteria and even viruses go through a process in which they recognize self from non-self because a virus, as you remember, takes its DNA and injects it to your cells. And bacteria will say, ah, this is not my DNA. And it will, there's a system in which little molecules come in and they chop the, vac- the virus DNA up into tiny little pieces, break it apart recognizing self from non-self. So this isn't just happening in big animals. This is happening even in bacteria and viruses. And it happens in everything that functions like it's alive. No exceptions. Everything on this planet, everything has uh, functions like it's alive has a way to differentiate self from non-self. No exceptions. It's universal. Now, 
Protocols are the heart of the talk. Protocols are how one entity can exert control over another entity. So how in the world does that happen? Well, one way it could happen is by actually physically contacting them. I could go up to your pastor and I could grab him by the shoulders and physically control him, right? Maybe. Maybe, maybe. I expected that from a West Virginian. You know, somebody from like Washington, D.C. would have said, please control me. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, that's the way it is. Thank you for living up to my expectations. All right. But you know what I'm saying. You can actually reach out and touch. Reach out and touch. Well, here's a cool way your body reaches out and touches by directly physically controlling a microbe. It's called the complement system. And this is a picture of it. This is what it really looks like. This is, a, this is a microbe. And when this gets into your body and your body recognizes it as non-self, tiny little proteins will be put on the outside of it, building a tiny ring. A tiny ring on the outside of the bacteria, and here's what it looks like from the side. This is a picture of a bacteria magnified hundreds and hundreds of times, and this is the tiny ring, and if you were to look at it from the end, your body has put dozens of these tiny rings all over it, and they punch a hole in the outside of the bacteria, and all of the guts of the bacteria, so to speak, gush out. And then it's dead. That's physically contacting it, a physical contact. That's one type of interface. But what's really more interesting is how you get two independent entities to control each other without having to even touch the other one. How do you do that? Are you following me? I'm going to control you without even having to touch you. And you're going to control me without even having to touch me. Well, the person who puts together an interface does this by putting together systems, or at least they know the systems of how the two independent entities must work. So whoever designs the interface knows how bacteria work. And whoever designed the interface knows how a human body works. And they know it really, really well. Because your bacteria are primarily working in your lungs, on your skin, and really where they're working mostly is where? In your digestive system. So who put this together, let's just talk about digestive system, knew how the cells of your digestive system would work. And they knew how bacteria would work. And whoever's going to build the interface says, okay, I know how this works. I know how this works. I'm going to get them to work together. And how I'm going to do it is this. This is really fascinating. They're going to use their innate systems. They're going to say one's a requester, one's a provider. And they're going to connect them through condition consequence protocols. Let me tell you what that means. God knew how bacteria worked. So he set the interface up so that when the cells of your intestinal system present conditions, outside conditions to a bacteria, 
the bacteria could detect those conditions, and when it detected those conditions, it would operate in a certain way. Are you following me? When it detects this, it will do this. So if it detected condition A, it would put out response Z. But if it detected condition B, it would put out response Y. Isn't that cool? And it works in reverse for your cells. When your cells detect conditions that the bacteria makes, your cells will respond one way. And when they detect different conditions, they respond in a different way. And so without even having to touch each other, the person who puts this together is really kind of like a genius. Because they say, if I do this and this does that. And you know what else? The bacteria in your cells are completely blind to what's happening. They don't even know they're, they're being controlled. So what's really interesting about the bacteria, which are good in your body, is that one moment here, your body may be a requester for something, and the bacteria, guess what it does? It provides what you need. But then at the next moment, the bacteria may be a requester, and your body provides what it needs. And they work back and forth as requesters and providers, not in a hostile relationship, but in kind of a business relationship. Isn't that cool? That really makes sense. This is, maybe this is how the Lord set it up to work. Of course it is. Because right now, your, your gut is working with the bacteria, the vast, 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 vast majority of which are not harmful to you. The vast majority of which. And guess what's happening in your gut right now? This. Exchanges. How many exchanges? How many exchanges like right now? Trillions. Not billions. Trillions. Are you getting an appreciation for the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ? He thoroughly knows bacteria. He thoroughly knows you. He sets up systems that do this requester provider operating on a scale which makes, would, would crush Amazon. They'd be gone. And he's setting this up. And he has it happen all the time. Let's use an example. This is a really cool one. This is a work from this leading researcher. This was just published this year. She worked with tiny, tiny little squid called bobtail squid. They're only two millimeters long. And bobtail squid can glow. They glow in the ocean. But they glow because there's a bacteria inside of them which helps them glow. Now, how does it work? Okay, bobtail squid, boom, it's born. Born into the ocean. An ocean full of all kinds of bacteria. Bacteria. How does it work? Well, first of all, the tiny little squid, which is only two millimeters, it can detect in an ocean full of bacteria as few as five of these bacteria called Vibrio, the ones it wants. It can detect as few as five of those bacteria. And when it detects it, it activates genes for the antimicrobials. And then it sets out like antibiotics in the water. And all of the other bacteria, except the Vibrio, don't have traits to those antibiotics, and they die. 
And the Vibrio then, they detect another protein called chytobios and they will migrate into a light organ inside this squid. And they will, they will automatically go there. But then as soon as the squid detects certain molecules on the outside of the bacteria, it shuts off its light organ and seals the bacteria inside of itself for the rest of their life. And then, as soon as the squid detects those, the bacteria will detect a substance inside the squid called a cryptochrome. They, when they detect that substance in the squid, they start making light. They start emitting their light. But the squid has a detector that can detect the light that the bacteria are making. And when it detects the light, it upregulates its own genes to make more of the compound so that the bacteria emit more light. Isn't that a cool interface working back and forth? And this little light organ inside the tiny little squid, it's monitoring the light. And any bacteria which are not emitting light, it kicks them out. Gone. Hmm. What an incredible interface. What an incredible system. And I just described it for you how an engineer would build it. But listen to how evolutionists write this up. Remember I told you in their worldview, it's always the environment which is driving things. They say this. When the Vibrio, that's the bacteria, first touches the squid, it changes the expression of scores of the squid's genes. You know what that statement is? Totally wrong. Totally wrong. These bacteria cannot change the expression of anything in the squid. The bacteria are there, and when the squid detects them, it changes its own genes. That's how it really works. It changes its own. But everything in the evolutionary and naturalistic worldview is going to be written as if the environment does it to you. Now let me give you a little biblical reason why. And you can check this out in Romans chapter 1. Because in the Bible, Romans 1, it says God creates nature. But then it says that people have come up with an alternate explanation. And the alternate explanation is nature creates itself. Nature creates itself. God creates nature or nature creates itself. And then they explain how nature creates itself constantly by saying the environment changes the creatures. The environment changes the creatures. And that's how they say creatures are built over millions and millions of years as the environment is constantly changing and molding them and making them. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Creatures are designed and the environment does not change the creatures. Creatures change themselves. Creatures change themselves when they detect different environments, they adjust to them. And so this is how it plays out. Evolutionists say nature drives organisms through space and time leading to their design. Nature's 
challenges and problems change organisms. That isn't how design really works. It says designed organisms drive themselves through space and time solving challenges and problems, enabling them to move into new niches on the planet. Are you savvy? Savvy? Do you catch what I'm saying? Two opposite explanations. Two totally opposite explanations. I'm either being driven, nature creates itself, or God created nature, put the power in me, I drive myself. Organisms are driving themselves. This is incorrect. In fact, this man, who's a researcher, he points this out. This is so important because this is what all of you have been taught in school. In everyday parlance, i.e. what you get taught in school, environmental stimuli are said to induce or even regulate the expression of specific genes. This notion is so ingrained, engraved in the biological conception that it comes as a revelation when upon closer scrutiny it turns out that no external stimuli could directly induce the expression of any gene are known. I'll tell you what that means in terms of cause and effect. What evolutionists are always saying is this. I'm the organism. Here's an external condition. And they always go from, here's a condition, boom, here's the effect. This condition caused this effect. And that is how biology is set up to think how it always thinks. So you're asking yourself, why did biologists start thinking that way? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, I can tell you why they started thinking that way. Because when biology was born, way, 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 way back in the late 1700s and 1800s, when it really started to take off, people could see, they, can, they could literally see with their own eyes the external conditions. So they could see maybe a drought. A drought happens to the land, and then they could see maybe a generation or two later, oh, here's some plants. Here's a few plants that are resistant to the drought. Doesn't that happen? That happens. Therefore, the drought, the drought caused the resistant plants. The drought caused it. That made, it, that made sense. I could see the drought. I could see the drought-resistant plants. I connect the two together. This caused this. And the reason why they did that is because here in the middle was the organism. And nobody knew what was really working inside the organism. It was a mystery back at that time. It was a complete mystery. Electron microscopes, biochemistry, all the methods of analysis that we have today, it didn't exist. But now we can open up the organism and we can look inside. And this is what we really see. We don't see this causing this. We see an organism that detects the drought. It detects the drought. When it detects a drought, it activates genes, it changes itself, 
It does something inside and it produces drought resistant traits. Are you following me? So the causality is not this causing this. The causality is this detects these things and it works. Does that make sense? Of course it does. So if you and I were going to build a spacecraft, you're all engineers, and I say, I want you to build a spacecraft to leave Earth, go to Mars, land on Mars, come off of Mars, and come back to Earth. And I don't, I don't want it to be manned. I want it to be completely automatic. No, no control with Houston Control Center here. So it's going to do this. What are you going to have to build for? Whoa, that's a lot. Is this spacecraft going to go through all different kinds of environments? You're going to have to know what those environments are, and you will have to build what? Traits into your spacecraft to be able to handle those environments. And if you don't build it into the spacecraft, what happens to the spacecraft? It's, it's like... It's, it's, it's like made in Texas or something like that. It's just not going to make it. It's just not going to make it. There. Okay. Now your spacecraft is going through space. And it, the conditions are these different environments. They're just surrounding it. How does the spacecraft know when it's in a different environment? What are you going to have to put on your spacecraft? You're going to have to put a sensor. You're going to have to put some kind of sensor on there, aren't you? So that it senses it. And then it has to take information and send what it senses to what? A? Com who said computer? A computer. A computer that says, if this condition, if this condition is there, then do this. So if it hit a condition where you needed to pressurize this spacecraft and it got into a condition with low pressure, it would detect the low pressure and pressurize it. If the equipment needed to operate at a certain temperature, when it detected the temperature outside falling, 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 it would detect it and it would turn on heaters. And it would operate automatically. Does that make sense? Guess what does that? You do it. You do it all the time. Creatures do it all the time. And you're able to do it in environments that haven't even shown up yet. Do you realize some of you have traits to live in conditions which haven't even shown up on the planet? And they're built in. Let me give you an example. In the 1980s, there was a a nuclear reactor in the Soviet Union which melted down. It was called Chernobyl. Remember the Chernobyl accident? Melted down, spewed highly toxic radiation over a large, large area. So toxic that living things couldn't live in it. Or we thought. Would you be surprised if I told you there's lots of animals now living in the radiation zone? There's birds which look just like normal birds. They live there. They reproduce there. They have offspring there. 
Well, how do they live in all of this radiation? They have mechanisms which repair their damaged DNA, damaged from the what? The radiation. And they repair it at 10 to 100 times faster than normal. They automatically repair their DNA faster, faster, faster. So they get in there. Sure enough, their DNA is getting damaged by the radiation. They're just fixing it faster. Now, that's a condition which probably wasn't on the original Earth. Would you agree? But these animals already can change to do it. And, of course, we know it's not mutations causing these changes because what the birds are fixing are mutations. They're fixing mutations faster and faster and faster. Wow, that is really interesting. So the, turn up the volume. Driver's peace of mind. 50 years of designing cars for crash survival that led us to our most revolutionary feature yet. A car that can see trouble and stop itself to avoid it. You see those engineers, how proud they looked? <laughs> well, they should be proud. They should be proud. They made a cool car. They made this cool car that stopped itself before it hit the wall. Evolutionists and how environmentalists would look at it, they would say, the wall stopped the car. <laughs> And they would, their logic would go, well, you know, if the wall wasn't there, the car wouldn't have stopped. It would have just kept on going. But from design analysis, the engineers were right. The car, what did they say? Stopped itself. It stopped itself. Because it detected the wall. It said, if there's something in front of me, then do what? Put on the brakes, blah, 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 blah. All of that. That's how creatures function. That is really, really cool. So, we need to change our thinking. I mean, all of us need to change our thinking from this environment-driven type of thinking where the environments are driving the show and running the show and all of that to real design analysis thinking which recognizes that when I build this clicker, when I build this clicker, I put 100% of its capacity to do what it's supposed to do in the clicker, or whatever this is called, the presenter, the laser pointer, 100% of the capacity is in this laser pointer. Oh, does this laser pointer, by the way, have an interface on it? What is it? It's the button. And this thing could like blind you, but it's like, uh, no, it won't. Just teasing. <laughs> it's, this, it's this button which is the interface between its inner workings and me. So they always have to have these interfaces there. And we don't, we don't jump over unseen things with magical language. And the magical language in the evolutionary world is natural selection. Natural selection is the magical language. And let me tell you why that is. Because... As an engineer, my fundamental job is to design things, which means I select. I 
specify. I write plans and specifications. And specifications are always an act of selection. So someone designed this pulpit here, and they specified wood for the top, and they didn't specify metal. They selected wood, and they deselected what? Metal. Same for this. Same for that. Someone specified carpeting for this room, and they didn't specify tile. And they didn't specify hardwood floors. So they selected carpet, but they didn't select tile. And those, that is a real selection because the engineer has a real brain, which can make real choices. All of you can do it. Dogs can do it. Cats can do it. We, these type of creatures can make real choices. They have volition. They can make real selections. In the worldview that says nature creates itself, they have to get God's brain out, God's selective capacity out, God's volition out, and they have to replace it with a substitute volition. And that substitute volition they call natural what? Selection. So of those two words, the most important one is not natural. The most important one is selection. Because now you have projected onto the environment the ability to do what God can do, select. The ability to do what a real human engineer can do, select. And you have now projected. You notice I'm not saying it's really there. I'm saying you have projected onto the environment, the ability to essentially what? Think. Act. Make selections. But my question to you, savvy creationists, does the environment really have a brain? No. The environment is unconscious. The environment has living things in it, The environment has living things in it. But here, I'm here to tell you, the environment isn't alive. Oh, some of our New Agers would really have a cow with that. (laughs) The environment isn't alive. The environment doesn't exercise agency. Can you exercise agency? Sure you can. Why can you do it? Because you're alive and you have a real brain. Does God exercise agency? Of course he does. Can nature exercise agency? No. Nature cannot exercise agency. Therefore, nature cannot really select. Therefore, nature is not making real selections at all. That is a projection onto the environment which isn't really real. Now, that should be highly offensive to Christians. You should be like, wow, I never saw that before. That's really offensive. So if I held up to you, and you know how offensive it is? This is how offensive it should be. If I held up for you a statue right here, and I said this statue can select your mate. Just come up to it, rub it on the forehead, and it will select your mate. You would clearly say I was promoting what? What was that? Idolatry. Ooh, we, mean, we need to get back to our basics in Christianity. 
That's what that is. That's idolatry. I have just projected onto an inanimate thing powers that it really doesn't have. And that is always idolatry. Now we have done the same thing to nature. We have projected onto nature powers to select which it doesn't really have. And therefore it gives credence not to God creates nature, but to nature what? Creates itself. Hmm, that's really, really bad. And not only that, they do it by stealing credit, stealing credit from the capacities. Man, my voice is giving out. I think I've talked a lot in the last couple days. For the things that God has made. So when God makes this creature here that produces a trait that solves an environmental problem, enabling it to move into this environment, i.e., this trait successfully solved the solution. This trait successfully solved the solution. They say the environment selected for it. Hmm. Do you see how they swap causality? Or the environment favored it. How many of you have heard that word? The environment favored it. And when this poor organism doesn't make a trait to solve this problem, in other words, it failed, they would say it was selected against or the environment disfavored it. So they're taking the success or failure of something inside the organism and they're giving selective capacity to the environment. They're giving mystical powers to favor, to act on, to select. Hopefully this is really coming out. This is really a bad deal. And we have been teaching this. So I'll skip through this slide. I knew it was coming. I'll go through it really quickly. But this is what's really happening. You have an organism A, which I've just arbitrarily said is self. And it's going to relate to organism B, which is non-self. Let's go up to organism A. Outside of A are all different kinds of conditions. But the conditions in and of themselves are not inputs. They're not inputs. Because in order for it to be an input, there must be something on the outside of organism A, which is a detector. It has to be able to detect it. And then when it detects it, it sends data to an information center, a logic center, right here, that says, if this, then do that. Now all of the outputs on the outside are really what happen in biological things. A creature can put something out to re-stimulate itself. It can put stuff out to another organism. It can put out another stimulus. It can make products within itself. It can put out a signal to do apoptosis, which is a way to self-destruct. Did you realize that? Some cells get a signal. It says, when I get the signal, now's my time to destruct, to destroy myself. And they do that. Or they can regulate their own DNA. They get signals to regulate their own DNA. All these things happen within your cells. Now looking over here at B, this is really important. And that is, what is a stimulus to you? What is a real stimulus? A stimulus is an environmental condition external to you, which your designer has specified to be a stimulus. Designers must specify it to be a stimulus and they must give you a detector for that. Otherwise, it's not a stimulus. So sound waves are a stimulus to you. My sound waves are a stimulus to you. 
but not all conditions are a stimulus to you. Would you believe right now <clears throat> you are getting bombarded by radio waves? All kinds of radio waves are hitting you. How many of you, though, are listening to AM radio in your brain? <clears throat> you're not. Hopefully you're not. <clears throat> you're not. Because AM radio waves... When your designer never specified those things to be a stimulus to you. And if the Lord would have, he would have had to give you a detector for those. Do you see what I'm saying? So not all conditions are a stimulus. Boy, this is a real revelation to many biologists. Because they see almost everything as a stimulus. And they don't, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't recognize that stimuluses are not just conditions, they're always something that is specified to be a condition. If you are hearing radio waves in your brain, I'll talk with you afterwards right now. So let me give you some examples. These are very common ones. We have these blind cave fish. There are some fish that end up, find themselves in caves, and after a period of time, they're completely blind and they've lost their pigmentation. Now the typical story is, well, these fish... They find themselves in caves and eyes are no longer useful. Therefore, eyes get scratched and bumped by the walls of the cave and before they become a detriment. And over time, the cave selects against, selects against those with eyes and mutations happen and eventually mutations cause a loss of eyes. And the ones that no longer have eyes no longer get those diseases from scratching their eyes on the wall. Therefore, they are selected for. That is it. How many of you have heard that story? That's the typical story that we, we tell all the time. That story is bunk. <clears throat> I mean, really. Cavefish lose their eyes. Crickets lose their eyes. Salamanders lose their eyes. They lose their eyes and their pigmentation. It's happening to all kinds of creatures. That doesn't sound like random accidents. It sounds like something that's been designed to enable fish, if they get into a cave, to fill the cave. And we, our ministry, predicted a year and a half that that would be what was happening. And lo and behold, a year and a half later, a paper came out that said this protein called heat shock protein is regulated as those little fish are tiny little embryos and it regulates the expression of their eyes. So that not in many, many generations, in one generation, you can go from sighted fish to blind, depigmented fish based on the regulation of this protein when it finds itself in a cave. Hmm. That should be like a big hmm. 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 Wow. Hmm. That's really new. Hmm. Really, really new. And then here's an experiment with these mice. These are male mice. These are, these are, this is, this is an interesting experiment. What they did is they took male mice and they put them on a metal pad. And they were standing on a metal pad and they exposed the male mice to cherry blossom odor. And when the male mice smelled the cherry blossom odor, they shocked their feet. Zap. Not a lethal shock, just a painful shock. And then they exposed them again. Shock. Expose. Shock. Biologists do this stuff. Shock, shock, shock. All right. And they exposed these male mice over and over again to this painful shock. Then they mated these male mice with naive female mice. 
naive female, not naive females like human males are looking for, but naive females that had never ever smelled cherry blossom odor in their life. And then they had pups. She had pups. And they took some of the pups and immediately sacrificed them and dissected them and stained the region up by their nose where their olfactory bulb is and their nerves are. And they had different types. Here were caged mice, pups, pups that had no odors. And look at the number of nerves. You can see them stained. These are the stained. And then they took some that had neutral odors and no foot shocks. But look at the pups whose dads had been shocked. Look how many olfactory receptors and nerves they have. 200% increase. And these pups have never experienced cherry blossom odors, but they were born with this capacity through an epigenetic change in their dad who passed it on to them. Wow, that should make you say what? Hmm, hmm, wow, that's really interesting. Hmm. And then here's about these different beaks on these finches. Look at all those different beaks. All those different kinds of beaks. Well, we now know that these beaks come about through expressions of various, oops, went way back, through various mechanisms in all of the finch beaks, this paper was just published last year, can be reduced to that equation. All of them. So that when you get different variables in here, you will get an output of a different beak. If, then. If, then. And that's how these beaks function. Wow. Well, how does this enable organisms to work in the real world? Well, this was a paper that was published just last year on these little wood rats. And it shows how their microbes, this is getting back to your immune system, their microbes enable them to fill different environments. And they say this, here we demonstrate that gut microbes are crucial in allowing these herbivores, these wood rats, to consume toxic plants. These results demonstrate that microbes can enhance the ability of hosts to consume plant secondary compounds. In this case, it was creosote. And therefore expand their dietary niche and breadth of mammalian herbivores. I'll summarize what that says. You have wood rats. They normally cannot eat creosote. You know what creosote is? It's a plant because it kills them. But if you change the bacteria in their gut, the bacteria will detoxify the creosote and then they can eat, eat it. And then they will fill that niche. They're fruitful, multiply and fill the niche, and the microbes are changed by their interface system, which we call our what? Immune system. But the interface system is regulating the gut. Here's another paper that says that your gut, your your interface system can change the type of microbes within 24 hours of eating a different diet of eating a different diet. So if you went to Louisiana and started eating crayfish, within 24 hours, your your so-called immune system, which is really a what? An interface, would regulate the bacteria so that you could eat it. And this paper was just published in June called Mother's Little Helpers. And this paper showed that moms living in a specific niche 
as they're breastfeeding their newborn babies, their mom is putting factors in the breast milk, which is changing baby's little gut microbe flora so baby can live in the niche that mom's living in. Bang, bang, bang. So this is not really an immune system made for killing bacteria to protect you. It's really, as we know from design experience, an interface. It's an interface whose purpose, right from the very beginning of creation, was to regulate the good bacteria, and they were all good, regulate those bacteria within you so that you could be able to fill new niches all the time by controlling what's happening within you. And that is what the immune system really is. It's a way to connect you to the what? Microbes within you and put you together so that you guys can work in harmony as requesters and providers with the purpose that you can go off and live in all different places on this planet over time. Now, isn't that a new way of seeing things? That hopefully is, in my opinion, it should be liberating. And you should no longer see organisms as being driven through space and time, like little slaves of the environment. But really, they were made by their designer to drive themselves through space and time, taking on those environmental challenges, solving those challenges, displaying their great design, and in the process of it, displaying their great design, glorifying their great designer. And that's what it's all for. Thanks for the time in Sunday school.